Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen Watt, and in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is the international real estate investment strategist, author, entrepreneur, and business coach, Dolph DeRoos. Uh, Dolph is presented with Tony Robbins, Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, he's a noted expert in wealth psychology, confidence, and mental toughness. Dolph built his company where he makes it easy for people to invest in real estate and have consistent monetary returns flowing in. People who are familiar with Dolph know him as being passionate about the psychology of wealth in general, real estate in particular, and more than willing to share the fruits of his ongoing quest for knowledge. Welcome to the show, Dolph. Super excited to have you on, my friend. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. We were having a good chat uh, beforehand, and 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 I said that uh, you know I heard your accent, and I went, "Oh, this is familiar," because I'm so used to talking to Americans, etc. And so to hear another Kiwi, uh, uh, another New Zealander, uh, was a bit of a shock for my brain because it's just not part of the script, right? So um, give us a, give us some intro on on you for people who don't know who you are, and tell us more about yourself. Well, it's a funny thing because, you know, obviously I have an accent over here. So I'll go to a bank and people say, oh my, where is your accent from? And I said, there must be a mistake. I don't have an accent. You all do. It's called an American accent, which drives them mild, of course. Um, so I was born in New Zealand, but my parents were from Europe. They went from the Netherlands to Indonesia originally. In fact, it was about 1950 when things got a bit rough there and they decided to either go back to the Netherlands or try something new. And in those days, the options were Canada, the United States, Australia, in New Zealand. And New Zealand had the toughest entry requirements. So they thought it must be the best. So off they went to New Zealand. And they arrived in Wellington by boat at the wharf. And there were big banners saying down with Holland. And they thought it seems they don't like Dutch people very much here. But the banners meant down with Sydney Holland, the name of the prime minister of the day. So anyway, that's sort of the background. I was born in New Zealand down in Dunedin. Um, but then I ended up going to school in multiple countries and, uh, you know, I lived all over. And right now I'm living in Phoenix, Arizona and sunny Arizona. Oh, wow. Now you, you were saying that, you know, you've got a bit of a background in all kinds of things, right? There's a bit of a medical background, um, wealth, success, that kind of thing. What was your, what was your journey? Did you have a job and then discovered some stuff along the way? Were you always kind of into the entrepreneurial thing? Run us through well, that. Well, that's a sensitive topic with my family. I have the dubious distinction of never having had a job. And it came about because, you know, my parents never had a chance to go to university. So they drummed it into my sister and I that to do well in life, to be successful, you have to study hard and get a degree. So when I finished university, when I finished school, 
sorry, down in Dunedin, off I went to university. I did an intermediate year at Otago. And the interesting thing is at Otago University, you could study anything you wanted on this planet, mineralogy, dentistry, medicine, you name it, except for engineering. So of course I decided to do engineering and off I went to Canterbury University. And during my first week at university, I looked around at me at the people with the degrees and I thought they're not uniformly wealthy. There's something wrong with this formula that degrees equates to wealth. So I decided to make a study of the rich. I wanted to know what do the rich have in common, thinking perhaps somewhat naively, if I could identify 30 or 40 things that they did have in common and emulate them, that I'd have a good shot of being rich. But the problem was I could hardly find anything that they had in common. It wasn't age, it wasn't gender, it wasn't religious belief, it wasn't whether you're an immigrant family or not, the firstborn, the lastborn, anywhere in between. I could only find two things they had in common. And one of them was that almost without exception, the rich either made their money or held their wealth in real estate. And I thought, man, if that's all it is, I can do that. So I set about finding a property. I found an old wooden villa divided into two flats with two more flats, motel style units out the back. And I had to apply for a mortgage. And I'll never forget when I went for my first mortgage application, I, I gave the bank manager my spiel. And when I stopped talking, he leaned forward and he said, are you done? And I thought that's a bit of an odd question, but I said, yes. And he said, this is a hoax, isn't it? He thought it was a university prank. And I was devastated because I was flat serious, but fortunately I didn't give up on it. So I persevered, I went to bank after bank and eventually one of the bank managers said, you know what, I'll take a chance on you. And so at the end of that first month, I collected the rent from these four units. And James, it was more money than that month's allocation of mortgage payment and rates and insurance. And I thought I've made money and I haven't worked for it. I've got to do this again. So I kept on buying more and it took four years to get an honors bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And the university came to me and said, man, you're doing quite well. It's only one more year for a master's. Why don't you do that? And I said, because, and I didn't have a reason. So I did it. And halfway through, they said, why didn't you switch to doing a PhD? And I said, because, and again, I didn't have a reason. And the moral of that part of the story is if you don't know why you do what you're doing, you'll end up leading other people's lives. But I ended up spending eight years at university and um, got this PhD in electrical engineering, not the easiest course around. I think most people have recognized that. And I confess I went to two job interviews because you can imagine my parents were sitting by the phone waiting for me to announce that I'd taken on a job. And I was offered a job. I'll never forget the interview. I was offered a job at $32,000, which back then was a lot of money. But the week before, James had just completed a real estate deal that netted me $35,000. And I remember thinking, why would anyone in his or her right mind work 40 hours a week, 50 weeks of the year for $32,000, when in one week you can make $35,000 and take the rest of the year off or read books on the beach or travel or whatever. So I never took that job. I've never had one to this day. I um I resonate with that so much. Uh, so for me, it was it was getting to that understanding, and 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 I feel like it's I've taken too long, right? I'm I'm 31, you know, and I'm looking at my kids. I'm thinking they're going to be lucky because I'm going to be able to pass on knowledge like this uh, that will help them. But then I have people listening to this, and and friends, and and clients who are 
40 and 50, you know, ages that I could never possibly become uh, until I'm there. And realizing more and more that it doesn't matter when you have this epiphany to, to wealth creation, it's it's starting now is the best time because starting 10 years from now, you've you've lost the 10 years. So if someone's thinking this sounds great and that's great for you, Dov, because you know you were young and James is young and etc. But somebody has got some income, somebody's got maybe a little bit of equity and they're looking at themselves and thinking, I don't want to work myself to death for the rest of my life. What would you say to them to kind of spark the idea of doing something different? Because a lot of us are caught in that work for money trap. Right. And to me, I'm going to be a maverick here and not say the best solution is quit the job today, this very millisecond, and then figure out what you're going to do next. I'd have a more measured approach. And I would say this, if you can figure out ways of building up passive income, and by passive income, I mean income that you generate without swapping time for money. So when you have a conventional job, whether you earn $15 an hour, $150 or $1,500 an hour, you're still swapping time for money. So figure out things you can do to generate passive income. And then when your passive income exceeds your current job income, then you're ready to quit your job. And then you can put even more time into generating more passive income. You know, the last thing you want to do is quit your job. You've got no substitute for income. You end up going broke. Um, So I'm not an advocate of that. Although for some people, it would really be a wake-up call and it would force them into actually creating something. But you want to do it the same safe way. And I was lucky that I started buying properties when I was crazily young, when I looked even younger than I was at the time. It's hard to imagine now. And this thing, by the way, you can't imagine being 51 or 61. Man, I can't imagine that I'm as old as I am. I don't feel it. It's only when I look in the mirror, I get this fright and I think who's come into my home and I realize it's me. But anyway, it's, uh, you know, so, but the main thing is to have fun. If you can't put your head down on your pillow at night, whether you have a job or no job and say, well, today was a blast and I'm looking forward to tomorrow, then change what you're doing. I, I like that because even in this conversation of wealth creation and passive income and things like that, I feel like a lot of people feel like they have to even if they're enjoying what they're doing. And while it might be a good strategy for the future, you know, uh, obsessing over something that doesn't give you fun uh, and enjoyment because you think you have to is classically the opposite problem that you develop from quitting the job because you think you need to chase the money. Right. And to give that some perspective, James, I was 35 years old and I was visiting my parents. They were living back in Europe at that stage and they picked me up from the airport And my mother said to me, you know, Dolph, it's not too late. And I looked at my watch thinking maybe it's not too late for dinner with an aunt or something. And I said, for what? And she said, to get a job. And I said, why would I want a job? And she said, because you don't have a pension. And I said, but my real estate is my pension. She said, but you never know. You know, it was so ingrained in her mind that we needed to have a job for security that she couldn't fathom the possibility that maybe you get to the point where you absolutely don't need a job because you've got more security than a job could offer you. It's fascinating. Uh, I feel that my my grandmother still says, James, you know, when are you going to get a real job? And it's become a little bit of a joke because she she realizes, but I, I I also think that it's a it's a pattern that that she's consciously trying to not impose on me because she understands that you know the 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 income that I've got and and the assets etc far exceed what I would be producing from that you know said job. But the thing for her was that it's not real work, and I've never I, you know I was a chiropractor to start with and and things like that, but it was it was never real work because I wasn't using my hands or I wasn't creating something that wasn't doing X Y and Z, and and it's a it's an interesting set of patterns um, 
that that we all have that I think the, the sooner we recognize right. them being passed to us, the less we get tense and judge it and the more that we go, all right, that's a perspective and now let me start to make some change. Um, it's so true, yeah, yeah. You said in, in the pre, uh, before we started the interview that you've got a wild background with even in healthcare and creating glasses for the blind, you said, and, and heart things and then the US military. I've got to know about that. Well, it's just I did my my um, PhD work at the University of Canterbury, which was fascinating work, and I largely worked on sonar systems. Sonar and radar are very related. Often, the mathematical equations are kind of similar. It's just yet one uses radio waves, the other one uses sound waves. And I was working with a team that was involved with making spectacles for blind people. That's kind of cool. And we'd get congenitally blind kids. So you've got to understand, don't have any concept of, of spatial awareness. And we'd have these wooden blocks that, that would be scattered over the table. And then the idea would be to stack them into a tower. And without sight, they have to feel around to do that. But after a mere 10 minutes of trying these spectacles, they could hear where things were, both in terms of range and direction. So we would have competitions with them. We'd put on blindfolds and then we'd put on the same spectacles and they would have the spectacles as well. And each time they'd beat us, not because we were pandering to them, because when people are blind, their hearing acuity is so much better than that of sighted people because they're dependent on them or they're more aware of it. So they learned how to use these things far better in a short time than we ever did. And the, the look of joy on their face when they were aware of, of what was in their surroundings. And you could hear the difference between cotton and nylon. And I can't explain to you how they sound different. But once you've heard one, you'll never confuse it with the other one. No more than you could explain to me the difference between a peach and an apricot in taste. But once you know what a peach tastes like and what an apricot tastes like, you'll never confuse the two. So it was kind of interesting. And then another area that, that was applied to was heart monitors. We had this device that could tell whether the tricuspid valve was closing properly or not or the mitral valve. And um, I was, you know, publishing papers on, on this along with other people on the team. And then eventually we got a visit from the U.S. military and they were faced with a, a problem back then, a Cold War problem where supposedly mines were being left in U.S. harbors and they were dormant. Ships could go by and nothing would happen, but they could be activated by a remote acoustic pulse that traveled supposedly all the way across the Pacific Ocean. And then these mines would say, oh, that's our signal to turn ourselves on. And the next time a boat would go by, boof, off these things would go. And the best military sonars, the billion dollar sonars, couldn't find these things. And everyone was using a sonar based on the time domain. You send out a pulse and wait for the echo to come back and the time delay gives you the range. It's pretty standard stuff. That's how radars work. And you see it on TV, on submarines and all that. Whereas we modeled the bat and the bat also echolocates, but they do it in the frequency domain. And very briefly, they send out a chirp over an octave and then you wait for the echoes to come back. So we had better resolution, if you like. And they said, do you think you could find these mines? And so I said, well, let's do the calculation. And we did. And we said, yeah, it should be trivial. So we ended up working under contract to them. In fact, back in the day, I was on an annual stipend, get this, James, of $1,500 a year. Now, admittedly, universities didn't cost what they cost here in the States, but it still wasn't very much money to live off for an entire year, right? And then the military wrote out this check for 72000 and slid it across the table and said, would this help? 
And I slid the check back and I said, yes, it would, but I can't see the invisible strings attached to the check. Meaning, you know, what does that mean? Am I working for you or whatever? But anyway, we did it through, ironically, a company in Salt Lake City. I just came back from Salt Lake City last night. But we did it under contract to a company there. So it was it was fascinating. It was a, a very interesting uh, sequence of events that led from me working on Sonar Systems in general and these devices for blind people to working, you know, on a, on a military project. Yeah, that's um, uh, it's it's when you when you said you were doing something and then the military came along, I went, oh, what you were doing must have been pretty interesting for the military to start thinking, hey, how do we start using this? Because they're always looking for applications of things, right? A lot of stuff is, uh, it wasn't jet propulsion and airplanes come from uh, a military, et cetera. And, 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 and so there's this, this creative yeah. process, I suppose. But I like you, what you said with the, the invisible strings, because yeah, you took the check, now you're in their book. Uh, so to speak. I wanted to delineate that first, but it had ongoing repercussions earlier this year. So we're talking decades later, I was in Miami, Florida, because I'm involved with a company called Top Doctor. We just opened a clinic there in the Four Seasons Hotel, meaning it's a high-end clinic. And we had a visit from, um, it was a General Anthony Tater. He was the immediate past uh, undersecretary of defense. So pretty high up in the military here, talking about backgrounds. What did you do? You know, where did you come from? Why are you here? And I talked about the medical devices, but then also that we worked on these sodas. He said, oh, I remember that. I remember that that kind of had a big impact on our ability to find what the then perceived enemy was doing. I won't make a comment on what's going down now in the world. And um, so he remembered that. So it had a big impact. And here's tiny little New Zealand tucked away at the bottom of the Pacific that you very seldom hear about. And yet we, you know, we still had a significant impact on what was coming on. That was pretty cool to experience. Yeah. Um, so to, with the glasses, obviously the glasses were just to position it so that they would look at an object's direction and find where it is they could orientate themselves, but they were, it was emitting and then they would hear. Is that how it worked? It wasn't sort of uh, in, uh, through brain signals or anything like that? No, correct. So it was converted into auditory sound. So you had a single transducer, which irradiated the environment with, with waves, with these, these octave sweeps. And then echoes would come back from objects and you'd have two receiver transducers. We'd process the signals and it would be fed into two ears. And the stereo effect gave you direction. So you can tell if it's to the left or to the right, that gives you the direction. And then the distance was coded by frequency. And you can understand it. Here's the transmitting ramp. Here's the echo coming back. The further away the object is, the greater the difference in frequency between the two. But the two ramps have a constant difference. So an object at a given range gives you a tone. Do, do, do. And if they're moving, do, 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 do. And it sounds corny to describe it that way, but that's kind of literally how it worked. And as it's projecting, you're not hearing anything come out go out or come back because that's in a non-audible frequency, but it's being converted into an audible frequency. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. So the the uh, the frequency sweep was over about 100 kilohertz down to 50 kilohertz, something like that. We, we varied the frequency, but it was way above normal human audition. You couldn't hear it. But when we down converted that signal and extracted the objects by having these frequency come out, that was in the audible range. And that's what we'd feed to the ears. That's amazing. Is anybody working on having that? I don't even know if the technology is available to even consider it, but transcribed, translated, if you will, into visual stimulus in the visual cortex or anything like that. So that the person can almost see, uh, literally see instead of hear 
to process? No, that's, I mean, that's an order, probably multiple orders of magnitude difference to know where in the, you know, the, the parts of the visual cortex that receive signals that can be fed to the brain and interpreted, um, that's an extraordinarily complex task. Um, so no, no, no one's ever attempted that. But the unit was commercialized. It was manufactured in Christchurch, ironically, for a, a while. And then I believe there were also people overseas who manufactured it. And then we made variants on it. We had diver sonars on divers who could go underwater. And you might say, well, why do you need vision underwater? Well, what if it's dark? Well, you might have a flashlight. But if it's um, subterfuge, you don't want to announce your presence with light, then that could be a reason. Or it could be that police divers needed to find bodies or cars underwater where it's muddy and murky, where you've got no vision, essentially. So we adapted it to underwater, you know, sonars for divers. Some of it was adapted for fishing type sonars and then just finding objects on the seabed, you know, missing objects. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm just ridiculously interested in it. We We can detect movement like the the motor cortex is you can you can decipher that to an extent and you can move an object on the screen they've they've plugged it into monkeys etc and replaced their arm to play the game by thinking about moving the object um, i don't necessarily know specifics of, of how that works but uh, i would assume 50 years maybe 100 years into the future we would be able to decode signals in terms of vision reception and processing but is, is it is it that it's more complex than than motor um where do you see uh, us moving to that sort of thing where you can actually replace vision or augment vision from external devices? Well, it's very hard to predict where science is going to go because it goes in bizarre areas. But ironically, I did one of my, you know, when you're at engineering school, you need to do, here it's called internships, I forget the word, but you have to do practical work experience, I think is what it's called. And um, I did one of mine at the Institute of Medical Physics in the Netherlands and we actually put electrodes inside um, primates' brains and then monitored them both from the point of view of seeing what they would experience with external stimuli and seeing if we could give stimuli to the brain to get some kind of cognition. Uh, we didn't do it through the visual cortex, but we did it through other mechanisms. And so it, it's already been worked on for a while. And I, I see it. If, if science goes in that direction, I think there are great inroads to be made. And things tend not to go incrementally, but you know, there's a lull and then there's an order of magnitude increase in our ability to do something and the number of electrodes you can implant or the way you can map it. It's, it's, it's like any area of science. So I wouldn't say it's beyond the realms of possibility at all for us to be able to have different stimuli other than human audition or human vision. Because mm, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing when we start to understand that the brain is functioning similar to a you know, biologic computer and there's processes that we can decode and and it gets scary, of course, if you're discussing the the military and influencing it and uh, whatnot. But um, in terms of just, for example, vision, you know, hearing, motor control, things like that, um, that there could be all kinds of uh, you know life changing. Direction. Right. And then we're learning so much because people who have a large portion of their brain incapacitated, it seems that other parts of the brain not normally associated with those functions performed by the erstwhile functioning brain, they get taken over by a portion of the brain not specialized in that at all. And the human brain's ability to adapt even within certain parts to take on other functions is just fascinating. Mm. 
And yeah. I can't deny that working in that research area, that is something that I kind of miss, that I'm not doing that every day because there's something about learning something new. I love the process of learning. That's why I tend to read more books than I watch TV series. Even though you can get cable here and Dish TV and all that, we've got 600 channels. And James, I'm telling you, you cannot flick through 600 channels without saying, well, I can justify the hour that I'm going to spend watching this. That's kind of interesting. But I don't do it because it's so easy to get roped in. And at the end of the day, so what if you know more than anyone else apart from the producer of that program about the mating habits of moths in Ethiopia? I mean, you, 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 you've got to actually do something that you can apply somewhere. So I find that TV tends to rot the brain. And as I always told people, if you want to improve your life, take your TV and toss it out the window. If you want to save some money, I'm all for that. Open the window first, but get rid of the TV because it basically rots the brain. You're held captive by script writers whose primary focus is to grab your attention so intensely that you'll stick around to watch even more ads. And when you see them that light, you can't, you think all this nonsense about a soap and who said what to whom and who was with, it just doesn't matter at the end of it's all a fantasy anyway hey the news is uh the news is that as well now especially these days right more and more sensationalized television and 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 news writing to grab attention to sell advertising i I couldn't agree with you more and and knowledge that isn't being applied you know i'm not going to boldly say is a is a waste but I, i resonate with the idea that learning a bunch of stuff but i'm not applying any of it is is a slippery slope to doing the same thing as watching television shows because there's so much that you could learn, consume, et cetera, but how, you know, what are you doing with it? Um, so I would love to know, um, what you're focused on at the moment. You're doing, still doing a lot with, with real estate. Like what's your, your big focus at the moment? Yeah, part of my passion is to share with other people how they can become financially free, basically. And I've just been blessed when you consider I'm I'm a kid from Dunedin. And when I first went to the States, I ran an event in the States and there were three people in the audience. One was my girlfriend and the other one was her sister. And the third person was a bona fide member of the audience. So that's kind of how I did my first event here. And if I'd been sane, I would have said, well, this obviously isn't working. I don't think I should continue along those lines. But as you know, many of your listeners probably know, I got roped in. I ended up working with Rich Dad, Poor Dad for five years. I was the Rich Dad's advisor in real estate. I wrote the book and the Rich Dad's advisor series on real estate called Real Estate Riches. Um, I was hunted down by a number of people. I ended up working with Tony Robbins. I've been on a stage for nearly 20 years teaching at Wealth Mastery. And, you know, other notable groups and people. And I I sometimes look back and wonder, how did it happen that I I went uh, from New Zealand to the United States and I ended up working, you know, with some of these, I don't know, higher echelons of people on the circuit. And it's still, I don't have an answer. I don't know how it happened. It just happens. But one of the biggest pleasures I get is when you get emails or or a message from someone who says, hey, you may not remember me, but I attended an event of yours 12 years ago, whatever it was, or read a book, and I didn't really believe in them, but I thought I'll give it a go, and now I'm financially free. In fact, last week I gave up my job. I mean, you can't describe how that makes you feel. You made a difference to someone. So I get a tremendous thrill out of helping other people figure out ways of becoming financially free. And I can give you an example of, of, you know, with my own daughter, because when she was five or something, she always said, Dad, I want a gumball machine. 
you know, a gumball machine. I'm sure we still have them in New Zealand, but you put a coin in the slot and then it's gumball, a lolly or whatever rolls around and it comes out and the kids can eat it. And apparently I said something like, well, if ever we find one, we can get it, something like that. So we were driving here through Phoenix, actually, and there was an open home. And I said, oh, cool, it's an open home. Let's have a look. And by now she was six or seven and she rolled her eyes kind of and said, not another house. I can imagine a kid doesn't want to see another house for sale. There's nothing in it for them. I said, oh, come on, it'll be fun. So we're looking through this house and she comes running to me and says, dad, dad, they're selling a gumball machine because they were not just selling the house, but the contents as well. I said, oh, that's nice. She said, no. But remember, you said if ever we find one, we can buy one. Well, James, between you and I, she was five when I said that. Just because I said that, do I need to stick to that? I'm the parent. And the answer is, yes, I do. It's all about integrity. How can we hope that our kids have integrity if we don't demonstrate it to them? I said, did I say that? She said, yeah. I said, I better ask what he wants for it. So I went up to the guy who was in his 70s. I said, how much do you want for your gumball machine? And I know we touched on this accent thing before, but true as I sit here, he said, where's your accent from? I said, I don't have an accent, you do. He said, funny, what do you do? I said, I'm in real estate. He said, residential or commercial? I said, commercial. He said, why don't you come back tomorrow and we'll have a chat over coffee? I said, all right, I'll bring the biscuits. He said, what are they? I said, well, they're cookies. You've got to remember that you're in a different country, right? Oh, I've, I've so, learned that, yeah. Yeah. So we went back the next day and he had this gumball machine sitting on the the path leading up to the front door of this big mansion he had with a bow around it. And he gave it to my daughter, Bella. And full disclosure, I think he probably knew who I was and was trying to ingratiate himself with me. But nonetheless, he gave this gumball machine to my daughter. So we had a bit of trouble getting it in the car because it was so big. But on the drive home, I said to her, I said, well, he gave it to you. So it's yours. She said, uh-huh. I said, so as far as I can see, there are three things you could do with it. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's yours. So you can sell it on eBay and whatever it generates, the money is yours. She said, but dad, I've always wanted a gumball machine. Don't make me sell it. Uh, what about number two? I said, well, number two is we could fill it with gumballs and then you could have three or four a day and we can make you and the dentist very happy. And she said, I kind of like that idea. What's number three? And I said, well, number three is we could put it on location somewhere. And then every week you and I will go there and we'll retrieve the, the quarters that have been put in and replace the gumballs that have been sold. We'll share the money with the owner of the venue because he's got to get revenue for letting us use his shop or whatever he's got. And then you'll have your first form of passive income. And she said, well, I kind of like number two, but I'm getting the feeling you're pushing for number three. <laughs> But my point to you, James, is isn't this a great way of teaching people at a young age the value of passive income? I think it's an incredible way. I think that we are conditioned to think about life a certain way. You know, arguably school, the bell rings when you go to class and you got asked to go to the toilet and you got to be permit have permission to be in the hall. And what's that conditioning us for? Uh, is employment. And I, I think if we track it back, it's factories. And so when, when you look at how things, you know, what it takes to quote unquote, I don't like saying the word successful because it's super relative, but when, when we're looking at life and we go, we only have so much time and that time is being spent, no matter, you know, where we point it, it's gone every week, how we choose to spend our time is the most valuable thing. And so if we can make our time independent of our currency, 
that we need to get us the things that we want, then we have more freedom. And so it's something right. that I've got two boys. Uh, one is a year old and the other one is three years old. And I'm obsessed oh, yeah, cool. with this idea. So much fun. So much energy, but so much fun. I'm um, right. obsessed with this exact concept of how do I help them to see the world differently and to see opportunities differently to separate themselves and their time from money so that they can enjoy their life without being obsessed about money being the thing that's going to make them happy. That's the first thing for me. And the second thing is that they don't need to sell their time for the currency that gets in the other stuff. So they can live more freely. And if they want to study amazing, if, you know, cause they want to learn, not because they think it's going to get them the job that gets them the car. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, what advice would you have for me looking to instill those, you know, th- those, those understandings, those beliefs about how to think about wealth and money and freedom and time for my kids. Cause that's a perfect example. I'm thinking, man, I need to go out there and get some gumball machines and uh, teach them how to, how to have gumballs for life because he's making money from his gumball machine. So what would you, what would you do? Well, the first thing I'd say, James, is don't be too obsessed with teaching them things by telling them things because kids learn best by observing and emulating what they see around them. And whatever a kid sees in its environment at home, that's what it thinks it's normal. And it's normal for the kid to think that that's normal. So a lot of parents at the schools where Bella went to had trouble getting their kids to read. And I said, well, I have no trouble getting, you know, Bella to read. And they said, why not? You know, we try braille them, no dessert unless you've read five pages. I said, oh, gosh, I wouldn't even begin to do that. And uh, they said, well, how did you do it? I said, it's easy. I just sit down on the couch with a really good book. And then eventually after five minutes or 20 minutes, she'd come up and say, what are you doing? And you can't say, I'm reading a book. You should too. I'd say, listen, I'm reading this fascinating book. It's so exciting because of this and this and this. Now it's got to genuinely be exciting, but I would say, if you don't find it exciting, don't read it, find another book. So if it's genuinely exciting, share why it's exciting. And they'll take note and she'd slink away. But then five, 10 minutes later, she'd come up and curl up to me next to me on the couch with her own book. And then after a while, I say, what are you doing? And she said, this book is really cool, Dad. I think you'd enjoy it. I mean, they catch that fever. You show by example. My daughter now is at university. She's studying business entrepreneurship with a minor in fashion. She has this desire to start her own fashion brand. And she did an internship over the summer here last summer and with the company. And she came to me and said, Dad, this working like nine to five, it's hard work. I said, that's why it's called work. You know, she said, I can't believe that I've been with you to all those events where people paid money to listen to you. And I thought, poof, that's just dead. I wish I'd listen more, but I'm, you know, so they get it after a while. Don't give them too much so that they haven't had to create some effort to learn it, um, but make it available to them. And if you're passionate about things, I always say that when you catch fire with enthusiasm, people come from miles around to watch you burn. And it's kind of true. If you're passionate about anything, your, your, your family will know it, your kids will know it, and they'll think that that's normal and they'll want to emulate that. So I get the sense you're doing everything right. Just have faith that you are doing it right. No, I appreciate that. Um, and, and that it's, it's so true. It's, it's something that um, I heard, uh, I think Joe Rogan said it uh, once in a little, little short on a video that I saw and it was talking about, you know, if you want to, if you want to be your best, I'm going to paraphrase this. If you want to be your best, you want to, you want to show up like there is a film crew watching you every day, documenting your process, because mm-hmm. when you get up at five in the morning and there's no one there, 
you go, ah, no one's watching. I'll get up at six. But if there's a film crew watching you, metaphorically, you're going to get up and you're going to do it. And I think that children, uh, when you realize that your children are your film crew, the problem is that you're going to either set them up for life or mess them up for life. That's been my my focus is, is exactly what you said, is being who they need me to be so that they can learn by observing. Because you're right, kids don't, you can't tell a kid what to do because they're going to say no. <laughs> You've right. got to show right. them, you've got to be the thing so they can see it and trust that, that the information, if, if it has the right energy to it, will, will, you know, will go across. Because yeah, you can't, right. you can't, I can barely get my kid to wear pants sometimes, right? So I can't tell him why he has to wear pants. He doesn't want to wear pants. He doesn't want to wear pants. You know, I've got to show him. To segue a little bit, you're more in the commercial space with, property and things. Is that right? You've done the residential and, and you're in the commercial. Talk to me about that yeah. and, and why. Well, like most people, I got started in residential and I think it's a good place to get started. Um, but there are many reasons why I prefer commercial. I just from a very crude financial um, analysis, when I look at the people who've made it really big in real estate, and I'm talking about 100 million plus, I only know of one person who's done it with residential. The rest have all done it with commercial. Um, so that's kind of a hint of things to come. But apart from anything else, I find commercial just far easier. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. One of the, the typical ones is that with residential property, a typical tenancy agreement lasts for one year, occasionally two years, but you never get five or 10 year residential tenancy agreements. So after the end of the year, you either have to renew it or it goes month to month. Whereas typically with commercial, they're a bit shorter now than they used to be a decade or two ago. Not too long ago in the city of London, as opposed to greater London, typical lease lengths were 25 years. But the most common call I get to this day from commercial tenants is, Adolph, can I please get a five-year extension on the lease? And I'll look it up and they've still got four years to run. And I say, but you've still got four years to run. And they say, yeah. Anyway, getting back to the question, can I please get a five-year extension on the lease? And the question for you is, James, why would they want a five-year extension when they've still got four years to run? And the answer, of course, is that any commercial enterprise has a thing known as goodwill. And in order for them, even if they want to sell the business, if there's only three months left on the lease, they won't be able to sell it because the buyer won't know if the business will be able to operate there. So they have an inherent interest in having a longer lease. And tenants on commercial leases tend to pay the outgoing, such as property taxes or rates, as we call them down under, insurance and maintenance. Whereas with residential property, it's the landlord who pays those things. Commercial tenants have a vested interest in keeping the place looking good because they earn their income there. Um, and the list goes on and on. I've got, you know, dozens of advantages of commercial over residential. And to be fair, there are two disadvantages. Banks tend to lend a lower percentage. And technically, it can be more difficult to get a tenant for commercial property than for residential. But I've got ways of overcoming those too. So I've got no disadvantages of commercial real estate. I'm in residential real estate because as you do, you, you know, you've got some equity and you go and buy another thing that you've already got because it seemed to work and everybody seems to know to buy, buy houses. But how would you think about transitioning to, to commercial? Do I think about it in the same way? Because it seems like a lot of people get stuck in the, well, I know about this and it's working and, you know, there could be risks of switching. And I can feel that in myself uh, being a pattern there is, is going, well, if I, it's, it's different, it's different. What's your advice? 
Um, firstly, I wouldn't say you have to switch, meaning sell every scrap of residential property that you've got and put the capital into commercial. I would say even keep looking at residential property if you find another bargain, which is kind of tough to do right now because the market all over the Western world is ridiculously high. Not only is it the highest it's ever been, but they've had the sharpest increases. New Zealand too. In one survey, New Zealand came out ahead of the pack as having the, the greatest percentage increases of all the Western nations. Um, so keep looking, but at the same time, broaden your search to encompass commercial as well. And by the way, just a point of differentiation, often people, I think, get confused. They think that apartment buildings are commercial real estate. And I admit that for appraisal evaluation purposes, that sometimes, you know, you, you get charged on a commercial basis and mortgage companies and banks and lenders often think that apartment buildings are commercial or the loans are based on commercial numbers. But my definition of residential and commercial is residential real estate is where people live and commercial real estate is where they conduct commerce. And we'll gloss over the bit where some people conduct commerce in their homes. That's a different thing. But we're talking about a commercial lease document. So, yes, yeah, start looking at those. And some people think that we're talking about a $40 million, 30-story glass and concrete tower. No, my cheapest commercial property ever was $59,000 in, in Christchurch, corner of Breezes Road and Winonia Road. It was a wet fish supply shop. It had a commercial lease on it, $10,400 a year, and never failed to get rent for a day that I owned that building. I owned it until the earthquake took it down. So it's, you know, commercial needn't be expensive. That was cheaper than I think just about every home I've ever bought. So just start broadening your search, and then you'll see things that you didn't see before. Are you generally looking uh, in, in commercial for more, um, you know, rent gain than capital gain? Or are you thinking about them similarly? I've always only thought really about property is how can I have it maintained by the rent that I'm collecting so that it is held uh, and has capital gain? Maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Well, it is. So I've got my own way of looking at both residential and commercial. And here I'll try and give you the, the one minute summary of, of why commercial works so well. The value of a residential house is based on comps or comparables. If you've got a three bedroom, two bathroom home of, you know, 300 square meters and it's got a certain aspect and certain age, certain condition, then it will sell for about the same price as any similar three bedroom, two bathroom, 300 square meter home with the same age and condition and aspect down the street or up the street or across the road. It's based on comps. You can't sell it for double that. If you tried to sell it for half, you'd sell it, but the next person would buy it and sell it for the market value. So the value of a residential property is determined by the market. And the value of the rent is determined by the market. If, if the rentals are, you know, making it up at $1,000 a week and you try and get $1,300 a week, you won't get it. And so market determines, the rental market determines the value. So the market determines the yield. And that's why we can say here in Phoenix, a typical residential house is selling at a yield of about 5.2%, something like that. With commercial real estate, the formula is different from residential. With residential, the formula is that the return equals the rental income divided by the purchase price. That's the yield we speak of. The formula for commercial is different. The formula is the value of a commercial building equals the rental income divided by the cap rate. And I know some people are gonna think, cap rate, I've heard of that, what's that? All it means is it's short for capitalization rate. It's the rate at which we capitalize the rental to arrive at the capital value. So you've got rental of $100,000, cap rates are 10%, 100,000 divided by 10% is a million. In other words, investors are willing to spend a million dollars to buy that 100,000 of rental income. Now, 
What determines the cap rate? The market determines the cap rate. So in that sense, the value of the property is determined by the rental divided by the market. But what determines the rental? And you might say, well, surely the market does, but you have a much bigger influence on that because if you've got a thrift shop paying $12 a foot or whatever that would be, you know, $111 a square meter or something, call it $12 a foot, and their lease is expired and you don't renew it because Starbucks approach you or Gloria Bean or Seattle's Best or any of those major coffee brands, and they're willing to pay $24 a foot, then if your rent goes from 100000 a year from the thrift shop to 200000 a year from the coffee shop, the cap rate's the same. That building is now worth $2 million. And I said there were a couple of disadvantages of commercial. One is that banks have a lower LTV loan to value ratio. So typically on a residential property, a bank will lend 80%. On commercial, they'll only lend 50%. But imagine if we buy this building with a thrift shop in it, the lease expires, we put a coffee shop in there, the rent goes to 200,000, it's now valued at 2 million. We get a 50% mortgage of 1 million. That's the purchase price. By engineering a different tenant or a better tenant or buying a property where the rents are below market and we just bring it up to market, we can increase the value to the point where what the bank will lend you will cover the purchase price. I can't do that with residential because it's worth what every house of a similar Asian condition and style is worth. So most of my money that I've made in commercial real estate I've done by buying under-tenanted or vacant or sub-tenanted commercial buildings, bringing the tenancies up to full spec, then getting an appraisal and then using that money to buy it. And you might say, isn't it illegal to buy a property without a tenant in it? Well, you don't even have to buy it. I, I bought a funeral parlor in Ashburton out of all places. It was vacant and it had been on the market for three years. No one could figure out how to get a tenant there. And so I didn't buy it in the hope that I'd find a tenant because if I bought it and couldn't find a tenant, then I'd be stuck with the same problem that the then seller had. But what I did do is I employed someone at the then going hourly rate of $8 an hour to phone every funeral director going further and further away from the center of Ashburton. And my person doing that, it took them two days and they got as far as Kayapoi, which many of your listeners probably know is just north of Christchurch, so about 60 miles or 100 kilometers away. And he said, oh, yes, I've always wanted to operate there. Now, remember, I hadn't bought the building yet. So did I risk that he would find out about the building and buy it from under me? Of course I risked that. It's never happened in all the times I've done this. And I even said to him, I said, listen, there's a vacant building for sale. If you want it, you can buy it. But if you don't want to buy it, and if you really like the premises, if you're willing to sign a heads of agreement, like an LOI, a letter of intent, where subject to me buying it, you will become the tenant, then I'll have a crack at buying it. So he went off and had a look at it and said, oh, it's perfect. I want it. I want I want to lease it. I said, well, sign this heads of agreement. And he said, not so fast, Sonny Jim. I'll only do it if you give me a long-term lease. And, you know, here's another one of these benefits of commercial real estate. He wanted a long-term lease. And I would have been happy with five years. But I said, just how long do you want? And he said, I'll only do it if you give me 10 years with a right of renewal for another 10 years. He wanted a 20-year lease. I mean, it's it's it just it worked well. So anyway, he did the heads of agreement. I had a crack at buying it. I got the building valued with the bank approved value. It was through Bank of New Zealand, and they were very conservative and they valued it at 240. And they lent me 160, and the building cost me 170. So I had 10,000 cash in it. 
And a year later, the same bank appraised it or valued it at 300,000. Um, so that's kind of how it's done. You just find a vacant or semi-vacant building, figure out a way of getting a tenant in, then buy it, get the tenant in, get a valuation done, and that covers the purchase price more often than not. That's an incredible strategy. I uh, I need to look more into this. I got I got two two last questions for you, Dolph. Okay. Um, where can our audience connect with you to find out more about what you're doing and 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 the good information that you're sharing? Because I'm going to have a look. Oh, so it. I've got a website, DolphDeroos.com. And, you know, the name is pretty rare, so it's easy to find D-O-L-F, Dolph, and then Deroos, D-E-R-O-O-S, DolphDeroos.com. There are other ways of getting their property, Prosperity.com. Um, I put on events all over the world. Um, I've done events in 26 countries, and I enjoy doing that. But there, some of them are focused on real estate. Some are not. Some are just on wealth creation, the psychology of wealth. At one stage, I had the highest selling course on Nightingale Conan, which is to be a purveyor of physical media, like cassette tapes, if anyone remembers what they were, and CDs. And then I also run events where there is no agenda. I've got one coming up in June in Italy. And the, the idea behind that is we, we figure out what people need to learn to go to the next level. What's holding them back? from going exponential, from 10Xing their current business. And we can't just focus on real estate for that as psychology of wealth. Maybe they've mastered that, but there are other areas that are holding them back. So my point is we do this plethora of different things. And it's all about, you know, having a big impact on other people's lives, because as Zig Ziglar said, you can get anything you want in this world as long as you help enough other people get what they want. So part of it is to, to do that. And then the other part is to have fun. And having these events and seeing people's minds shifted and, wow, I never thought of that. That's really cool. I think I could give that a go. I'll never forget when I did an event in Fiji out of all places. It was at the Sheraton Denaral, and there were about 1,200 in the room there. And um, I remember this guy stood up. He was a Maori uh, bloke, and he stood up, and he said, oh, so I, um, I read your books a few years ago, and I thought I'll give this a go. And I bought four houses and it nearly bankrupted me because all my cash flow went there. And my missus here said, if you buy one more house, I'm leaving you. And the room of 1,200 people, it went silent. You could hear the proverbial pin drop. And he said, but anyway, I went ahead and bought the house. And you'd think that everyone would clap and cheer and say, you know, but no one did. It was just as silent. And after what seemed like an incredibly long pause, it was only about five seconds, I guess, I said, everyone is waiting to hear what your wife ended up doing. And he hesitated for about as long. And she's and he said, she's right here beside me and she loves you. And we quit our jobs and we just love this. Thank you. And the whole crowd erupted. Moments like that, you can't describe how it makes you feel. You made a difference to one person. No matter how insignificant it might be for other people or whatever, you made a difference. And that's kind of what it's all about. I, I love that. I'm I'm very impact driven and uh, with my clients and, and what I do with their practices and and uh, it's good to hear because that's it's what lights me up as well is that you know that one person that makes a, a massive change for them and and it makes all the rest of it uh, make sense. So last right. um, last question I've got for you is uh, I love to ask everybody this because I, I find it the most valuable part of the interview is is what's the most important thing that you ever learned. Oh, gosh, that is kind of tough because there are so many things that I would put up there with a almost equal importance. 
but you know, at the end of the day, if you're not enjoying what you do, then your ability to impact other people, to help other people, to be a good father, to be a good brother or, or sister or son or daughter or whatever, it gets affected. So be true to yourself and speak your truth always, even if it's painful, make sure you have fun and just always remember that you can do anything in this world. I'm kind of living proof that even a kid from Dunedin can go out there and, and make you know significant impact as long as you help other people. If you're focused on other people and not yourself, you know you can go to the moon. Thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, Dolph. This has been a lot of fun and and made me learn a lot. And I'm going to go back to my mastermind with Jim and, and Mandir and, and have a chat about getting to some commercial. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it too. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Everything shared will be in the description of the episode so you can go and grab that. Now, if you enjoyed the show and you want to listen to more, please subscribe because every week we're releasing new episodes with inspiring people, successful people, so you can level up your game. So subscribe and also leave us a review. We'd love to hear feedback about the show and your thoughts and opinions there as well. Now, if you want to have more success, whether it's in your life, whether it's in your business, we run live trainings every single week where you can get access to me to coach you through everything from health, wealth, success, business. We're doing topics on all things that you need to live a better, more inspired and successful life. Live trainings every single week. Just visit jamesnielsenwatt.com forward slash live and you can get access to that now. There's also a ton of resources that you get for just listening to the show. All of that will be in the description. So if you are watching this on YouTube, check the description. If you're listening to this episode, check the description. We've got a load of resources there for you to have more success in your life, whether it's relationships, investing, or in business. I'll see you on the next episode. And as always, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends because there's somebody else that needs to be hearing this and maybe you're their opportunity to help them level up their game.